Traditionally, what does a coach start with? Determining their client's goals. That's important, right? Because otherwise, what are you there for? And why would a client pay you money to support them? The way we look at that in soul-based coaching, it's a funny one because yes, and also no. Of course, you need direction as a coach, a reference point throughout the work together to help you determine where to direct the attention of the client to be best of service. And we want to know what it is that the client wants and how they will know that they've gotten what they want. We want the client to create a very clear picture of what they want to call in. But when you look at it from a new paradigm perspective, goals are pretty limited as an anchor for your coaching sessions. In this episode, let's dive into why that's the case and what else you can do. Welcome to Soul Whispers, the official soul-based coaching podcast where we are inspiring conversations about new paradigm coaching. I'm your host, Annemiek van Helsdingen, founder of the Academy for Soul-Based Coaching, where we've impacted the lives of thousands of coaches and clients. I love sharing insights and experiences that can make us all even better coaches, healers, therapists and leaders in this time of rapid transition. You can expect new perspectives and rigorous new paradigm coaching practices, all rooted in yin-fueled wisdom. Enjoy! Traditionally, what does a coach start with? After the first chit-chat and a cup of tea coffee, well, ginger tea in my case, if you're lucky enough to meet live. Well, by determining their client's goals. That's important, right? Because otherwise, what are you there for? And why would a client pay you money to help them? And the best goals are said to be smart, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-specific. Now it gets to be interesting because when we look at goals through the lens of the feminine paradigm, this is what we see. When we let the rational mind lead, it will take the client through an obstacle course of goals, their current reality, what are the obstacles and the options, and what is the way forward, like in the popular GROW model. With a big helping of commitment, accountability. But the rational mind will keep the client firmly in their current paradigm. So here are some examples of what I mean by that. Let's just look at those smart goals again. Specific goals. They are determined at the start of the work together, which means that they are confined to the current knowing of the client mostly informed by the information source that they have most access to, their rational mind, maybe their emotions, and definitely their current patterns and paradigm. The mind, by its very nature, lives in a linear paradigm, the one where causes have effects. But we know that we are cyclical and systemic beings and part of a cyclical and systemic whole. And that means that causes of one thing are the effect of another in all directions. There are many ifs and whens and other conditions at play. And there's always a touch of the mystery 
the magical, the emergent, not to be foreseen. And when we don't pretend that it's different, life gets to be much more alive and coaching gets to be much more powerful. But our rational minds literally don't know about the dimensions that it's missing. It's not what it was built for. So specific, hmm, interesting, right? Then we have measurable goals. Now measurable goals are limited to the tangible world. You might think, well, that's a good thing, right? Because that's why we want to see changes happen. But every change starts as a thought, a feeling, an inspiration, an intuitive notion. And that is intangible by nature. It can then be brought forward into an expressed form. But when it's a smart and measurable goal, the end goal is already determined. And it's very hard to allow space for even better or even completely different in that process. We have very strong cognitive biases that will try to keep all the efforts within the bounds of the goal that was set. It's kind of like limiting the smorgasbord of what is available to our client, what they could achieve, to only this thin slice of what their rational minds can conceive of. And I'm looking at achievable goals. Well, that's a really interesting one because who could possibly be the judge of that? Would Gandhi have set out with achievable goals? In whose eyes? Yes, I imagine it helps if the client has some sort of belief about it being possible. But actually, our better future right now desperately depends on people doing seemingly unachievable things. Uh, Claire Dubois from Tree Sisters comes to mind, who is thoroughly committed to planting trees in the tropics where it has the most impact to combat climate change and the incredible emotional impact it has for her to see what's unfolding in the world. You know, including the wildfires in California, where she lives. Does Claire feel that it is achievable what she's striving out to do? I think she doubts that very often, as we can see when you follow her journey on Facebook, which is incredibly inspirational, by the way. But there is no doubt in her system that this is what is worth working towards. I'm also thinking of the suffragettes who campaigned for 80 years in some countries before seeing their first actual success. Was that achievable in their eyes? But also, I've seen too many people and clients do seemingly unbelievable things. Right? When we co-create with life itself, who knows what the limits are? Let your client determine what is or isn't achievable, what they want to put their life energy behind, and let's not make achievable a condition for them to start out with. The next one was relevant, right? And smart. Well, that's a really interesting one because who can determine that? Well, really the only one who can determine that is your client at every level in the coaching session and not just when it comes to goals. As a coach, you can help guard relevance, but you can never determine what is relevant or not. And what if we trusted that that thing that your client wants is what is relevant? Now, the last one in smart goals, right? The golden standards in setting goals is that it needs to be time specific. It is really great to set a coaching goal in time, to have a clear sense of when you'd like things to happen. But at the same time, changes are not dependent on clock time. 
Changes in soul-based coaching, for instance, are inner changes, changes of the way our client structures their reality, which in turn shifts the way they think, feel, what they pay attention to, the way they act. So when the inner healing, the inner alignment or shift is taking place, that is change happening in the moment. And the way that happens has a lot of bearing on the time scales of what can happen next. So yes, time-specific goals are great and they need to be flexible to respond to what actually unfolds during the client's change process so it can be relevant and helpful. And as a side note to this, so often time-specific goals are used by clients to beat themselves up. If you've ever coached an entrepreneur, for example, you know that dealing with time-specific revenue goals is a very tricky field. Some entrepreneurs might thrive on them, but many, many more see it as a test of their worth that is sometimes easy to fail. So what can be the alternative? How can we make sure that we have firm guidance in our coaching sessions without limiting our clients' capacity for powerful change? This is how we look at it in soul-based coaching. Of course, we need direction as coaches, a reference point throughout the work together to help us determine where to direct the attention for the client and how to best be of service. We want to know what it is that they want, how they will know that they've gotten what they want. And of course, as important, we want the client to create a very clear picture of what they want to call in. But we don't want our clients to just tell us what they want. We want them to tell us while being tapped into their longing, their desire for the change that they know they want. And then we want that embodied desire to lead the way. Why? Well, this is where their full creation power comes from. It provides the fuel for the journey you never have to worry about commitment or their ability to follow through anymore. It also provides access to the realms that seem outside of what's possible to their thinking mind, who mostly knows about what has been and what is. There is so much more capacity for change when you know how to deepen and widen the field that you work in, and of course without losing sight of what it is that your client would like to have happen. If you want to do this, it requires a big shift in how you start and how you hold coaching conversations. But before we go into that, let's look at desire itself. Desire has a bad reputation in our world. It's vilified by the church for good reason, because it's dangerous for the status quo. It's hard to control. And that is a sure sign of its creation power. Here's a little inquiry for you, if you're up to it. Is tapping into what you desire safe for you? It lives in your body. That's where you can access it. Is it familiar to connect with your desire there? It's a different energy than the outward focused, almost pointed, I want that that is so often connected to our ego, nothing wrong with that, by the way, our thinking mind and our solar plexus, which is the seat of our will, our action and our power, according to the chakras in the Hindu tradition. 
for me, desire manifests more like waves or cycles of energy that can be all-encompassing. It can be lingeringly present or it can share itself in smaller bursts. And all of me can involved with it at times. What is it like for you right now? What is it that you desire? Desire lives in our bodies. We can know it through our senses, through our bodies. It is a very powerful, creative life force energy. It is so powerful that the church decided it was sinful and needed to be cast out, especially for women. A woman listening to her desires, not encumbered by social convention, was easily seen as an outcast, a witch, a whore. And we're not there yet by a long shot, right? There are still acceptable and non-acceptable desires. So we have embedded this in our system. Let's be good girls, boys. Let's not want for things. We make do, we have it good, it's fine, even when it really isn't, but let's just not rock the boat. And because we've looked away from it for so long, it can be pretty overwhelming when desire does surface full force. And then we kind of lack the capacity to be with it just because we're out of practice. <laughs> Here's a great example of it. I remember internet dating what, probably about 15 years ago. Oh my goodness. The surge of hormones when there was something happening that might have potential. It was not easy to handle. It would take over my body, my mind, my ability to sleep. <laughs> Maybe you can relate. Well, that was desire full force. And I'm not just talking about the way physical desire showed up. That was there too. But also just allowing myself to fully feel the desire I had for a mate, a partner. And kind of sniffing that maybe the potential for that desire to become fulfilled was near. But that was an exception, right? Because until recently, and outside of those high surges, I would go through life very differently. And so many of us live with the desire dial settings turned down to maybe, what, 2 out of 10? We're simply not in tune with what we desire. Why? Well, except for that it's sinful part, which we may or may not subscribe to consciously, we might fear that desire will lead us into temptation. But what if desire by itself is not bad or good? It's just a very strong pull in your system towards something that part of you wants. I think it's more useful to think of what the consequences are of acting on those desires and there are always infinite choices. Getting to know your desire and what they are about, seeing your desire in the totality of who you are, including your body, your soul and your mind's wisdom. That is how you can learn to serve the powerful waves of your desires in a way that serves you, that serves the world around you should you want to. But deciding that the strength of these waves is more than we can handle and turning away from this powerful source of creative life force energy is most definitely throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But it is a big, big cultural shift. And there can be other reasons that you're not so much in tune with what you desire. 
For me, chronic illness has played a part in unlearning to feel my desire, for example, because it's just no fun to have so many desires kind of nipped in the bud. Maybe your parents were in the habit of stopping you from feeling or acting on your desires, maybe even making them bad in some way. Right? There can be many reasons we got into the habit of putting the lid on or ignoring or turning away from our desires. But what if you allowed the dial to be turned up to five or even eight or <gasps> ten? What if you would allow yourself to feel, to notice and even express more of that desire that calls you? What might happen when you do this? I see a lot more joie de vivre, like joy in life, in our collective futures when we do. And yeah, I'd say change is inevitable. And I've seen the living proof of this in my own life. And it is also what we see for our clients in soul-based coaching. Not that our clients necessarily turn up the desire dial to 10, not at all. It's just that we help them tap into that life force source that the desire provides for them. Because when you're invited as a client to feel into, to tap into what you desire, what you would like to have happen, your body, your mind, your soul, your emotions, they all have information about the change that's calling you. And formulating your desired outcome is a very powerful first step towards truly claiming what it is that you want. Now here is an important caveat. If you really want to help people tap into their own flow of desire, then you probably don't want to name it as such. Of course, there's some people you say the word desire and you know it will make them jump in this juicy flow and tap into it immediately. But for many other people, it's more like coaxing out a curious but easily spooked kitten. So luckily, all the usual benefits of soul-based coaching apply and we can help clients step into that powerful energy in exactly the way that is right for them in this moment because their system will tell us and show us no matter what their relationship with desire is like, it lives within them in some capacity. And even though it is a seriously juicy topic, it is also often a loaded word, an unfamiliar frequency. And unless this is part of your core teachings, we don't need to get sidetracked in our coaching sessions by educating our clients on this. We just want them to start surfing their own waves of desire and that's totally my metaphor because there may not be waves at all, of course. And when we help clients explore and embody their desired outcome in a clean way, meaning that we let their inner wisdom guide the way, it brings the focus of the coaching from the I want something out there, when and where, to right here, right now, right within you. So that means that different neurons start firing and wiring and all the rest of it. And really, this is where we help our client anchor a new state, a new perspective in the body, in the moment. So what can you do to start working with desired outcomes instead of goals? Start your session with presencing. Invite the client's whole being their body, mind, soul to arrive in the space. 
so that your client can have access to all of their intelligence. There's plenty of ways in which you can do this. Meditation can support this if you're not priming your client to enter a specific state, but just invite them to become present with their body. And then start your session with a question, and what would you like to have happen? This is a clean question, a clean language question, developed by David Grove, and it was designed to allow for maximum freedom in the answer that is given. It's not grammatically strange by accident, so use it exactly as it is to start to tap into powerful benefits. And what would you like to have happen? There is so much more to say about these questions, David's work and the work of Penny Tompkins and James Lawley, who originated the term desired outcomes as part of a model to help you decide where to guide your client's attention. Penny and James have been my mentors for years and I'm so grateful to them for what they continue to bring into this world. Their work is part of what we teach in soul-based coaching. And if you want to know more about any of this, come and join us for one of our free taster workshops at the Academy or seek Penny and James out online on cleanlanguage.co.uk. Now, one last thing that you can do to call in the magic of desire in your coaching sessions is to listen if your client's answer is focusing on what they would like more of and not just on what they don't want anymore. Again, this is part of a much bigger conversation about how change can happen in the most effective way. But in this context, just focusing on what you want to move away from still activates only a small part of your client's resourcefulness. And you want your client to start activating the inner parts of their system that have information about what they would love to be possible because that is where that fuel for change and the doorway into fast capacity for change is. And so now, the only question that's left for this episode is, and what would you like to have happen next? I hope this episode has inspired you to start thinking about what you do to support yourself and the people around you, be that your clients or the people that you love or work with. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share with your friends and colleagues and please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a review on iTunes. It really helps to get the podcast to the right people.